church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 1. It's the very beginning of the Bible. shouldn't take too long. And while you're turning, please stand uh, as we honor God's word by reading. I'll be reading Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Pray with me. God, these are your words, not just man's words, but truly special, divine, powerful words. And God, I ask this morning as we, as we look at them and as we read them and think about them, that you would be with us and, and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're starting a brand new series this morning uh, for the month of March. It's a four-week series, and it's called Marching from Earth into Eternity, and I think that is an excellent, excellent title, Marching, because it's the month of March, you know. And um, so each week, we're going to be talking on kind of a major uh, theme from the Bible, a major topic. So the first week, this week, is creation. Uh, Next week, we'll have Daryl come, and he will preach on the second coming. And then the next two weeks, Adam will preach a sermon on heaven, and then he will preach a sermon on hell. So creation, second coming, heaven, hell, some very big topics from the Bible. I'd like to draw your attention to a strange coincidence, before you notice it yourself, that the week which is themed heaven is the same week, men for, for the men in the room, that the youth will be gone on the uh, youth retreat and the women will be gone on the women's retreat. And that week's theme is heaven. That was not intentional. And... Um, but the joke actually cuts both ways because uh, the women, when, when you come back from the retreat to your husbands and kids, that week is themed hell. So, um, and, you know, there you go. <clears throat> but this week, uh, we're, we're discussing creation, and um, we'll be studying Genesis 1. Don't you just love, like, an amazing, uh, amazing, wow, that was a bad opening, and it's ironic I'm talking about openings. Don't you love an amazing opening line? unlike the one I just delivered. Uh, Here are a couple classic, famous opening lines from literature. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, right? Uh, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice, right? Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. That's Harry Potter. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh, Tale of Two Cities, we all know that line, none of us have read it. Um, A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, and a fine work of literature that is. And then here's my favorite. Um, There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) That's uh, Narnia. It's like Harry Potter, but the witches are Christian, you know. Um, There's no opening line, though. There's no opening line like Genesis 1, 
In the beginning, God. He created everything. With this line, what we see is that this is not just the beginning of any story. This is the beginning of every story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It all starts right here. There's no beginning in all of literature more elegant, more sublime, more simple. And there is a challenge in, in thinking about Genesis and in preaching Genesis. And the danger is we just know it so well. We're, so many of us are so familiar with this that we don't even think it's incredible anymore. That we know what happened at the very, very beginning of time. And we're like, yeah, not a big deal. This morning I'd like for us to kind of consider. Try to imagine it's the first time we've ever read Genesis 1. And let's see what it's all about. And so if you have a bulletin, you can look on the back. And I've got my sermon in one sentence, so if you need to read it and catch up on sleep, you can do that. The main idea is that God can create light from darkness and he can create paradise from chaos. And I want us to consider three Ps from Genesis 1. I want us to consider the power in Genesis 1. I want us to consider the purpose in Genesis 1. And lastly, the person of Genesis 1. And so that will be our goal this morning. So let's, let's just jump in. First is the power of Genesis 1. Look back at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Just like that. It's, it's actually more amazing than we feel like it is. <laughs> when I was working with campus outreach at Wingate, there was a a student who um, came to a Bible study. We had in a freshman residence hall, and he came to Christ. It was pretty cool. He was on the football team, and um, I started meeting up with him and just helping him read the Bible for himself. That was kind of my job, just to help people read the Bible for themselves. And we were reading Matthew 14. And, uh, you know, that's the story where Jesus walks on water, and then he calls Peter out of the boat to walk on the water. And so... I don't know how many times I've read that. I probably read it four times that day alone, you know. So I was sitting there, and I had read it, and he was reading it silently, and then we were going to talk about it. And uh, so I'm already done, and I'm, you know, probably thinking about tennis or something. And he's reading it, and I I, I still remember seeing his face. This is the first time he had ever read these verses. And his eyes get really big, and he looks up, and he's like, Dude, Jesus just like walked on water. And then Peter walked on water. And I'm like, yeah, I know, big deal. But like he, he was like, dude, like he just walked on water. That doesn't ever happen. It's incredible. And he's right. It is incredible. It's that amazing. The first time I I read Genesis myself, so I grew up in the church, but in college is when I really began exploring the Bible for myself. And I said, you know what, it's a book, I'm going to read it. I'd never read it so all the way through, so I said, I'm just going to start on the first page. And when I got to verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Dude, I was psyched out. I like, grabbed a highlighter, I was like, whoa. The first sentence, maybe the first thing that was ever recorded, said. I guess it has to be, right? And so I highlighted it. And then it goes on, and God said, 
you know, let there be this. And I was like, well, I guess I got to highlight that too. So I highlighted that. And then I highlighted the next. And then I said, every time God speaks out loud, I'll just highlight it. And I did through this entire Bible. The whole book of Leviticus is highlighted. You know, I'm highlighting. And then I finally get to 2 Timothy 3.16, which is all scriptures breathed out by God. I'm like, I just wasted a year and a half of my life highlighting the whole Bible. <laughs> but, but these words should strike us as amazing because of the power that God has. He just speaks and it happens. He doesn't have to lift a finger. He just says it and it's there. And it's not just poetry he's creating. He's creating light. He's the architect of reality. He's the inventor of existence. This is a big deal. I think our problem might be sometimes that we're too bored because we're so familiar with these incredible truths, right? I don't think the original audience of Genesis would have been bored. You know, the original audience, Moses wrote this book. He wrote it for the Israelites after they had exited uh, Egypt in the Exodus, and they're on the way to the promised land, and they were the first people to have this read to them. And it probably would have blown their minds because, you know, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. In Egypt, they worshipped all these false gods. And those giant pyramids were built to the sun god, Ra, of Egypt. And, and Ra, this Egyptian god, was supposed to be the creator who created everything out of this primordial pyramidal mound. And so these giant pyramids are meant to glorify this god, Ra. And when the Israelites read this, you know what? The sun's not even, the sun's not even in the scene until day four. And it's not even given a name. It's just called the greater light. It's like, compared to God, the sun is no big deal. It's got nothing on him. How can we, as modern, enlightened, educated American Westerners, how can we, how can we not just understand, but really be amazed by the power of God in these verses? Let me try to give you an illustration. Every man knows, as the uh, men yesterday at the men's shooting event um, were a great example of, that the true test of power is how much stuff you can explode. Am I right? So that's, that's what real power is. The largest human-made explosion ever was the Tsar Bomba in 1961. I don't speak Russian, but I think that means the Big Daddy Bomb. <laughs> and this bomb... Uh, was was dropped in 1961. The maximum yield was 50 megatons. For perspective, that's 1,400 times more powerful than the two bombs the U.S. dropped in World War II combined. 1,400 times more powerful. This thing had a blast radius of five miles. That's like from here to Viva Chicken, you know. From 62 miles away, the heat could still give you third-degree burns. From 560 miles away, windows were broken. Okay, so we're, we're seeing that, we're like, that's pretty powerful, you know, and, you know, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. Human, humanity, right? We can make some powerful stuff. But some of you may have heard that just this past week, uh, there was a news article that broke about the largest explosion ever recorded in the universe. Anybody hear about that in the news, maybe? I've got a picture. We can throw it up here. There you go. What you're looking at is a galaxy that exploded within a black hole 390 million light years away, okay? And uh, this kind of white uh, circle with the purple around it, that was a galaxy that exploded from a black hole. And uh, this came out in the news recently. NASA realized this is the largest explosion 
ever heard of, known of, recorded in the entire universe. And here's how big this thing is. It could fit 15 of our galaxies in its blast radius. It created a crater in this, in this gas. 15 of our galaxies, the Milky Way. That's really big. And here's how big that is. Imagine our solar system, okay, from the sun to Pluto, okay, because Pluto's still part. I don't care what anyone says. Imagine our solar system, the diameter of it was this silver dollar, okay? Now, that's not our galaxy. That's our solar system, right? If this was our solar system, the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, would be about the size of the continental U.S. So if you were to drop this somewhere in the continental U.S., that's about the size of our solar system in the galaxy. You can't put a piece of sand or dust on this that is small enough to represent the, the proportional size of our sun, okay? This is how big we're talking. And you could fit 15 of our galaxies in the crater of this thing. Pretty boring, right? I mean, and scientists, they, don't, they still don't know what, why, what caused it, you know? They were able to track it, but they don't know what caused it. I actually have a theory. Perhaps God was just clearing his throat. Because that's how powerful he is. He can just speak the universe into existence. This is the God that we're talking about. He's that big. He's that powerful. And that should do something to you when you hear that. I mean, I think of Psalm 8, which says, When I consider the work of your hands, the sun, the moon, and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? I mean, we should just stop and think for a minute. This God, he cares about us? He's interested in my life here in Indian Trail? He, he cares about me? And it should also slightly unsettle you to think of the power this God has over your life. It says in Ecclesiastes 2, 25, it says, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Did you know that God has power? The Bible says this over and over again. He has power over your pleasure. What that means is you could get what you've always wanted in life. You could get the car, you could get the girl, you could get whatever. And without God giving you the power to enjoy it, it would just taste bitter in your mouth. And think about if this God is for us, how much, I mean, what type of pleasure is in store for the people that this God loves? What type of terror is in store for the people that are opposed to this God? I mean, this is, this is what we're talking about. The first thing you see in Genesis is so simple a child can get it. God is really powerful. He speaks light into existence. The second P is purpose. So what's the purpose of Genesis 1? We, we've read this chapter probably hundreds of times throughout our lives, most of us. What's the purpose of it? Is it just that God is flexing or something? I don't think it is, even though he definitely is. There's so much you could say in a passage like this. The the thing that comes to mind is the saying, you can't see the forest through the trees. You guys ever heard that one before? The idea is like, the forest is the big idea. You know, you're trying to get the big idea, but you can't see the forest because of all the individual trees. Sometimes when we approach Genesis 1, I think it's like that. There's so many things Genesis 1 says, and we just we, we have to talk about them, but it kind of takes away from us getting the whole big purpose, the whole forest, so to speak. I want to talk about the, the big idea, the big purpose of this passage. But there are some trees in Genesis we have to talk about. You know, you always have to talk about the trees in Genesis, right? It's a Bible joke. But, so there are a few topics in Genesis that we, 
that Genesis teaches that I just want to touch, touch base on in passing because they're important. The first one is this. Genesis teaches that the earth and the universe is a special act of creation. It's, it's a special act of creation that God made. The agent of God's creation is God's word. He speaks it. There it is. Genesis also tells us how long this took to happen. It says it took six days, right? It does not tell us how old the earth is. I, I'm assuming the earth is very, very old, right? But Genesis doesn't specifically say, here's how old the earth is, what the age of the earth is. Genesis teaches that hum humanity is a special and unique creation of God. There's something just utterly unique about humanity that's unlike anything else. Even the grammar points this out. I mean, if you look at Genesis 1-3, it says, and God said, let there be light. If you look at Genesis 1-6, it says, and God said. And if you look at Genesis 1-9, they all say, and God said. But when you get to Genesis 1-26, it says, then God said. Right? There's, the, there's this purpose to Genesis. There's this movement to Genesis. Something's going on. And you'll notice in, in days one through five, God is saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. But when you, get to, when you get to day six, he says, this is very good. In Genesis 1.27, it says that God made man and, and woman in his image. He doesn't say that about anything else. Plants aren't made in the image of God. Stars aren't made in the image of God. Dogs are not made in the image of God. Humanity is only made in the image of God. There's this kind of movement from simplicity to complexity almost, right? It's, you know, you've got light and dark and, and then it, it kind of progresses and gets more sophisticated. You've got birds, you've got fish, you've got land animals and everything's getting more sophisticated and complex and then you have humanity, the apex of creation, right? And uh, the crown of creation. In fact, I have a theory. You know, you know what the very last created thing ever was? It wasn't man, it was actually woman, right? So men, if you've ever thought that the women in your life were somehow far more sophisticated and perplexing and complex creatures, here's your proof text for that, right? The women, you are the crown of creation, the last thing ever made. And this joke cuts both ways too, because women, if you've ever felt like the men in your life were somehow a, low, a lower life form, <laughs> uh, less evolved, here's your proof text. I want to talk really fast about uh, a couple items. One is, one is evolution, because we just can't come to a text like this in our culture without, without that kind of coming up in our mind, right? Like, you know, it, how does this fit? How does this fit, right? Here, here's a Gallup poll from July 2019. It says 40% of U.S. adults ascribe to a strictly creationist view of human origins, believing that God created them in their present form within roughly the past 10,000 years. That's 40%. However, more Americans continue to think that humans evolved over millions of years, either with God's guidance, 33%, or increasingly, without God's involvement at all. That's 22%. So 40% think strictly creation, you know, act of God, no evolution. 22% think all evolution, you know, no God involved. But a huge number, 33%, think both, right? Well, God did it and he did it through evolution, this kind of theistic evolution. The reason that number is so interesting is because that's 33% compared to 40%. If that's statistically true, then half of us in the room, almost, 
who, who believe in God and believe that he created would have some sort of, somewhere in the back of our minds thinking, and he did it through evolution somehow. Here's one more kind of thing that's interesting is you ha- geology, not just biology, makes you wonder how old the earth really is. And it's not just non-Christians who are wondering this, it's Christians. The PCA released a study on creation, a creation report, and kind of looking at the different views of creation. We, we won't go into all of those, but... And then immediately after that, it was kind of interesting, a group of geologists within the PCA, so they're within our denomination, PCA, but they are professional geologists, released a study about the age of the earth and saying how there's, there's like a lake in Japan that has all these sediments that have been deposited into it and over millions of years. It looks, looks like it's really, really old. And so there's this one position on creation, which is the day-age theory, which is that it's not six literal days, but each day is a, is a, is a period. It's, a, it's an age of an indefinite amount of time, and who knows how long it is. And that helps, perhaps, combat the question of how, how old the earth is and and also, it brings up a good point that the sun's not created until day four, and yet we still have days one, two, and three. So how can days one, two, and three be solar days if there's no sun until day four? It's a fair question. So I'm going to answer all your questions this morning. Isn't that exciting? I'm just kidding. I'm not. But I, I do want to, I want to give you some things to think about, okay? The first is this. I don't think that, I don't think that you have to go with the day-age theory and believe the earth is old. I think you can agree that I, I believe the earth is very old. I don't know how old. It's the oldest thing I've ever seen, you know. But it's really, really old. But I still think, it's, I th- still think God created the earth in six literal days. And the reason I think that is, one, is because it's the simple reading to the original audience. When Moses was teaching this to the Israelites after they left Egypt on the way to the Promised Land, I don't think the Israelites had this burning question, you know, about the geology in that lake in Japan or, or you know, or, or whatever. They weren't, they weren't burdened by the same questions that we're burdened by. It's the simple reading of the text. But also, if, if the earth was created in six literal days, regular days, you'd expect to find something in the text that clued you into that, which, in fact, you do. Because if you look at verse 5, it says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. One day. Okay, we'll look at... You know, verse 8, there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Look at verse 13, there's evening and there was morning, a third day. So, yeah, I, I think Moses knew that the sun wasn't created until day 4. But wait a second, we're talking about God. He doesn't need a sun to make a, an evening and a morning. He can do anything he pleases. Maybe it wasn't a solar day, but I have no reason to think it wasn't just a regular day. And also, if you look at Genesis 20, 9 and 11, God says, Six days you shall labor and do your work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And I don't think God is telling us to work for 6,000 days before we take a break. So, I mean, it's just the simple reading of the text, but I don't think that that binds you into a young earth view necessarily. One, one, one talk about evolution. I can't stay here long, but we don't need to be, as a church, dog dogmatically anti-science or something, right? And none of us want to be. The scientific revolution happened because of Christians from the Reformation, a lot of them Lutheran, pioneered fields of science and that type of thing. And plenty of, and plenty of things within science or whatever, it's not like Christianity and science are enemies. They, they really are married together. I think it's important to be specific and sensitive when we're discussing this issue. 
sensitive because this is really important to people. And it would be a real shame if we turned people away from Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of our souls, because we were just too mad or dogmatic or too insensitive to take the time to give a thoughtful response to people who have a real pressing question. And this is a pressing question to our, to our youth. It really is. I mean, coming from the college campus, it's pressing. Because everyone is saying, we've evolved after millions and millions of years, and so we need to speak sensitively, but also specifically, because when we say evolution, what does that mean, you know? I mean, natural selection, yeah. I mean, those organisms that are most fit to survive and pass on their genes probably will. Genetic drift, okay, yeah, things are going to move around, and if they die, that's going to limit the pool. All that thing is, all that's good. Microevolution, well, yeah, sure, like this bird and its beak, and okay, I get that, but... When we start talking about macroevolution of all of us evolving from a, a common ancestor, a common life form on the planet, there, for me, there are two, two challenges to that. And one's dangerous. The first challenge is scientific, the second's theological. The scientific challenge to that is that the idea of macroevolution, that we all evolve from a common ancestor, says that somewhere along the way, okay, we all share a common ancestor with some living thing about this size, right? And it may, maybe it was like a jellyfish, like a cnidaria, you know, floating in the ocean. Maybe it had some eyes, I don't know. But through mutation, this thing evolved into one of us. That's, that's kind of the thing. After millions and millions of years. I just have a heart, I don't, and if anyone can explain it to me, please do. But how is it that mutation can be beneficial so much to take it, a thing this big and evolve it into one of me? I know I'm not that impressive, but, but I just don't understand it scientifically. If you do please come talk to me. But I don't know that we need to distort scripture to match it to that narrative. And the second one is theological and it's important. Because Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This verse says, in, in Romans 5, it says that death entered the world through Adam's original sin. If you think humans evolved, this is a theological problem because you have millions of years of evolution, of death, of life and death and life and death and life and death culminating somehow in Adam. And that's a problem because then you start to say, well, was there even a historic Adam? Was there even a historic event of original sin? Was Adam our federal head? Did we sin in Adam when he sinned? Does that impact Christ being the new federal head? You see where this goes. And so I think we have to be careful. But, and even though I spent a lot of time on this, it's not even the main point of Genesis. It's not what this is about. What is it about? Really simply, I think Moses in Genesis 1 is trying to tell a story. He's trying to tell a story. It's that simple. And it's a story, yes, about creation, it's a story about the stuff God made. And it's a story, yes, about humanity, about all of us and where we come from. But most importantly, this is a story about God. This is a story about who God is. He's the main character. If you look at the text, look how many times it says, God, it's all over the page. He's the main character of the story and not us. And this story is about a God who can create light from darkness and a God who can create a paradise from chaos. The youth are going to be really uh, bored when I start to say this spiel and roll their eyes. But every story has four parts. 
right? And the youth are like, oh gosh, he's doing it again. But every story's got four parts, okay? It's got a setting. Uh, there's got to be a place where it happens. There's a conflict. Something's got to go wrong. There's got to be a problem or some, some sort of thing to be solved. There's a climax and there's a resolution. Setting, conflict, climax, resolution. Every story you can think of has those, those four parts. And so does Genesis 1, right? The setting is... Verse 1, in the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth. There's setting the stage, right? But then here's what's interesting. There's this conflict. The earth was without form and void. My translation says waste and void. And darkness upon the face of the deep. The spirit of God is hovering or fluttering or moving upon the face of the waters. And then there's this movement, right? There, there's the structure because the days, the days kind of have this uh, rhythm. Days one, two, and three kind of create these domains. And days four, five, and six kind of fill these, these different domains. Or it's almost like days one, two, and three have these different kingdoms and days four, five, and six come in and fill them. I mean, if you look at the text and study it, you can see that day one, God, he separates the light from the darkness, right? Well, on day four, God appoints the sun, he appoints the moon to rule over the day and rule over the night, right? Well, on day two, God separates the, the, the firmament, the sky above and the waters beneath, right? Well, on day five, God creates fish and birds, and he, he fills those domains, right? And then on day three, God creates the, the dry land, and on day six, God creates humanity. He creates the, the land animals and and, and we're told to have dominion, fill the earth. It's this, it's this amazing moment and this climactic moment. It's the creation of this thing in God's image, humanity. And God is an eternal God. And so think about this. When God creates something in his image as an eternal being, he just brought into existence eternal beings in his image like him. It's like the ultimate tattoo. God decided to bind his destiny to ours on this one day. Such an amazing thought. The entire future of God is married now to the future of humanity. He created these eternal souls, right? And then there's this resolution, it's this rest that God brings. It's a story of God taking chaos and taking darkness and bringing rest, bringing paradise. So that's the story. Why does it matter? It matters so much. I mean, think of how Moses used the story when he was when he was preaching to his church, who who had just exited slavery in Egypt and they were marching into the Promised Land. It's pretty interesting, actually. In Genesis two, in the Hebrew, these words, "the earth was waste and void and darkness and the spirit of God is fluttering." You find this combination of words in only one other spot in all of Moses's writings, and it's in Deuteronomy thirty-two ten through eleven which says, God, speaking about finding Israel, he found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and he cared for him, like an eagle that stirs up its nests, that flutters over its young. Are you guys tracking? So what what Moses is, is doing is Moses is saying, just like the chaos in in the beginning of time, the chaos in Egypt, Right? The plagues had decimated the land of Egypt and now it's a waste and it's dark and it's, it's destroyed. And God delivered 
I'm speaking as Moses, right? God delivered us and he's leading us into the promised land to give us this rest. This is the type of God he is. He takes chaos, he brings paradise, he takes darkness, he gives light. That's how Moses used it. Have faith in this God. And this story means something, not only for them, it means something for us. Because you don't have to go far in the Bible, you just have to flip the page and you'll see that the world we live in is a world full of darkness and chaos. We live within a world of darkness and chaos. But the Bible also teaches that a world of darkness and chaos lives within us. It lives within our hearts. I heard someone at the church say the other day, having kids blows away any superstition that we're somehow born good. (laughs) I guess that's true. I'll find out maybe one day. And then I heard another lady in our church say, she was sharing her testimony. And she said, she said, I was doing everything that our society says a young woman should be doing to be happy. I'd done it all. Everything an enlightened woman in our society, a young woman should be doing. She said, I tried it all. She said, I looked back on my life. She said, I felt disgust and I felt empty. And that's the natural state of our hearts, is it not? That's the, that's our daily reality. Apart from God, apart from Christ, what hope is there? Have you gotten to the point where you have felt the chaos and the darkness in your own heart? This is the, the purpose of Genesis. It's meant to show us that there's this God who wants to bring paradise from chaos and light from darkness. But it only works because of the person in Genesis 1. And so I want to quickly read about this person. Daryl read this morning from Proverbs 8. And what's so interesting about creation, the story of God bringing light into darkness and paradise out of chaos, is he's still in the business of doing that. Listen to Proverbs 8, which Daryl read earlier. This is in the Old Testament. It says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills... I was brought forth before he had made the earth with its fields, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he assigned to the sea its limit, I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. It's kind of an interesting passage, right? You think it's talking about wisdom, but then this person starts claiming, I was there. I was there at creation. And I was beside him when it happened. And you know what's interesting is almost every time creation's mentioned in the New Testament, there's some sort of person right there with it, right? Think of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, whoever this Word is, right? And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything that was made. And then it goes on in verse 14, and it says, This Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Here's another one in Colossians 1.16. It says, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through 
him and for him, and he is before all things. The Bible keeps on talking about this person of creation. And if you read in 2 Corinthians 4, it gives you the name. For God who said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. He didn't just begin in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the one who created the world. Jesus is the person of creation. Jesus, Jesus is the one who came to save us. And this, this verse in John blows your mind when you think about it when it says, the word became flesh. What that means is this God who is the size of the universe, right? This God who can speak and light will exist. This God stepped into one of these one of these soft, fragile human bodies that gets sick and has back pains and, and aches and is sore. He stepped into one of these. And if you see that, that makes the Bible so fascinating because as you read the ministry of Jesus, you recognize he's God. He has the full power of God. He created the earth he's walking on. I mean, just think about that. I was reading just the other day in uh, Matthew, the story of uh, the story of the passion of Jesus, of Jesus um, being crucified, and he stands before these Romans, and they dress him in this robe, and they 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 take the staff and they take it from him, and they hit him on the head. They just strike God on the head, the Creator, and think of the amazing restraint. He just takes it. He doesn't respond and kill them. He loves them. He wants to save them. You see how amazing the story is and the whole message of Jesus is that the chaos and darkness is your biggest problem the chaos the chaos and darkness in your heart is the biggest problem it's not it's not what you think often it's not your biggest problem is not that you don't have the job you want your biggest problem is not that you were you grew up in a bad family. Your biggest problem is not that you're lonely or that you're anxious or that you're depressed. All those are problems. But the biggest problem you have is that in your heart, the Bible says you're an enemy of this God, this all-powerful God. And he is in this, this relationship with you where if you, if you want to be fulfilled, you have to have him. It doesn't work apart from him. Here's one more passage about creation in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is basically when friends, when enemies become friends. And all of this happened through Jesus. How could this happen through Jesus? It happened on the cross. This is the gospel. The darkness and the chaos, the loneliness and the pain, the emptiness, Jesus suffered that on the cross. It says in Matthew 27, 45 through 46, that darkness fell over the whole land. Jesus suffered our darkness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is sweating, drops of blood like pouring down from his head. Jesus experienced the chaos at a level that we can never imagine a cosmic level of chaos. 
and he did it all to save you. And if you're not a Christian today, or if you're a Christian today, it's the same, it's the same application for this. And it's one word. And the word is this, it's rest. It's rest. If you're not a Christian, the way you become a Christian is by repenting and by believing. You can't can't become a Christian until you recognize this chaos in your heart, this enmity towards God, that you deserve his wrath. And the way the Bible talks about God's wrath is darkness. It's outer darkness. It's, It's hell. This is the destiny for those who reject God and will not repent. But if you do repent, and if you see what he's done for you on the cross, you can be saved. That's the message. And if you are a Christian... The message is that you're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. You're not who you once were. You're something brand new. The word is rest. Just like Adam. Can you imagine Adam waking up his first day? He was created on day six. And day seven is this day of rest. And Adam wakes up and he's ready to go. He's ready to do something awesome. And he says, God, what, what do we got planned? What are we going to do today? You know, I want to have dominion over something. And God looks at him and says, nothing. Today you rest. Because Adam was just stepping into the creation that God had already done. Adam didn't help God at all in this act of creation. He just got to enjoy it. And that's the gospel. You can enjoy this act of creation. It's not about you working to get this act of creation. It's about you receiving it as a gift. I'll end with this passage. In 2 Corinthians, it goes on to say, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away, the new has come. This chaos, this darkness, in this present life, we still experience outside of us. But the Bible promises a peace within. And here's what it says. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God designed it this way from the beginning, that there would be one day every week where you just rest. You rest in what he has done. My prayer for us this morning is that that's what this Sunday would be. Let's pray.